Welcome to Dime Library, with tales of western border romance, high seas adventure, lost treasure, suspense, and more. A mate to Buffalo Bill, Texas Jack, the White King of the Pawnees, by Ned Buntline, author of Buffalo Bill, etc. Chapter 1. The Signing of the Will In France, near Avignon, where the silvery Durance was the beautiful Rhone, their waters as clear and cold as the eye of a vestal, can even now be seen a monumental glory of those chivalric days when men lived and died in armor, when their manhood was known by their deeds rather than their wealth. This monumental glory is an ancient castle, perched high up among the tree-crowned hills which overlook the rivers as they meet, known now, as in the long gone by, as the Castle Omohondro. What this old pile, grand, gloomy, and peculiar, to do with Texas Jack, asked the reader. A great deal, if the reader will wait patiently for a strange mystery to unfold itself. In a chamber gorgeously furnished, hung with tapestry yet bright, though long used, an old man sat propped up with cushions in a great armchair, while the mellow light of sunset stole in through the high window facing the crimsoned west. A physician, likewise very old, stood looking intently upon the noble face of the invalid, while near his right hand sat a notary at a small writing table, pinning a last will and testament, then being dictated to him. The strangest scene of all was a young man with fair hair, blue eyes, and a face full of intelligence, sitting on the left, before an easel, rapidly painting a picture on canvas. Near him, watching every motion of his hand, as the picture grew beneath its magic touch, stood a lovely girl, whose face, hair, and fresh bore and features only a marked resemblance to the noble invalid. Back, but where the red light fell dimly on dark, scowling features, stood another young man, whose black, piercing eyes wandered from one to another of the occupants of the room with anything but friendly glances. "'Is it finished? The last word I have spoken written down?' asked the invalid, addressing the notary. "'It is, Monsieur le Marquis. It is all written down precisely as Your Excellency has ordered,' said the notary. "'And you, my physician and friend, Dr. Leclerc, pronounce me of sound mind, able to make my wishes clear, though you know as well as I that my hours are numbered, and that death waits now at the portals of my soul?' "'Yes, Marquis of Omohundro,' Noblest of men and best of friends, the good father above is letting the sun of your life go down as clear and bright as sets yonder golden glory in the west. Then let all within this chamber draw near to hear this will read now, that there may be no dispute hereafter. The voice of the old man, low and weak, was yet clear, and all heard it there. But the young man in the background, sullen and morose in look, did not come forward, though all the rest, the artist included, gathered around where the Marquis could see them. "'Where is Basil Lemore? "'He of all the rest should be here now,' said the Marquis. There was a tremor in the voice of the young girl, a shudder in her frame, and a sudden pallor in her face when she said, "'He came to the room when I called him, Uncle, but he stands back where you cannot see him. "'Does he not dare to look me in the face?' The gambler, the spendthrift, the libertine, said the old man. Is he a coward as well? No, the young man himself answered as he strode forward till he stood nearest the window of all, and the light fell on a face handsome even in its wicked look, on a form of noble proportions, yet on a person marked by evil passions too plainly for his character to pass unread by any keen observer. No, Marquis and cousin, bad as I am, I am no coward. 
I dare look you or any other man in the eye, living or dying, and I'm ready to hear the disinheritance, long since threatened by you, so far as property goes. But your title, your proud title, comes to me, and you cannot deprive me of that. Rash boy, you err. One lives who has of yet nearer kinship than you, said the old man. That girl, she who shudders when she speaks my name, she cannot take the title. Not that girl, but my own brother's son, born in that grand land of the West which our Lafayette helped to free from British rule. Jean Amahundro lives, as I have good reason to believe, and to him will descend my title and my estate. My money, my family jewels, all shall go to my sweet niece, my sister's child, Adeline Churchill, with such conditions as shall be heard when my will is read. Bah! It's a dream. The ship which bore your brother and his wife to the west was sunk at sea. They perished. That is on record. You cannot disprove that. The dead do not bear sons. A hateful sneer made the face of the young speaker fiendish. Edouard de Carl, bring hither the picture. Is it done? cried the Marquis. It is, most noble Marquis, done as well as my poor hand can paint it, said the artist, and he brought his easel to the front where all could see the picture on it. A cry of wonder broke from every lip, for the face, though young, was so like that of a portrait on the wall that every eye glanced from it to that. It was a strange picture, one so striking that once seen it could never be forgotten. A young man, clad in the picturesque hunting costume of Western America, sat on the back of a magnificent horse, in a position of fearful peril. For the horse, thrown back on its haunches on the very brink of a terrific chasm, was held there by the turn of a lasso, which the young man had cast back over the trunk of a gnarled, lightning-riven tree, just in his rear, seeming to restrain it, while helpless in terror the animal was hanging over the chasm of death. The picture was terribly real, but with all of its strangeness, the portrait of the rider was so striking that the family resemblance could not be mistaken. The portrait on the wall was that of the younger brother just spoken of. Friends, said the dying Marquis, God is good. I prayed when I felt the death chill coming to my heart that he would give me some sign to tell me if one of my near kindred yet lived worthy to bear my name and title. Oh, how earnestly I prayed before I closed my eyes in sleep three nights gone by. That night, the scene in this picture, just as Edouard de Carlos painted it from my direction, came to me as plainly as I see it now in that picture. And while I looked in wild horror at the peril the rider was in, while his horse struggled on that dreadful brink, a gentle voice, like that of Eva, my brother's wife, said, Jean Onomahundro lives, a hero amongst heroes, a king among the red men of the western wilds, my son and thy nephew. I woke, and from that hour I have been calm, waiting for this hour to do my duty to the living and to the dead. The picture is good, to you, my niece, it is given, that you may seek out your cousin and call him to his own. Now let the will be read. The notary, in a loud, clear voice, read the carefully written document, which gave to the Marquis Jean Omohundro, born in America, the vast estates of the testator and the rents thereof. The will made Adeline Churchill his sole executrix, as well as the legatee of a vast sum of gold and jewels, the last to be hers on one condition. She was to seek out her cousin and to restore him to his estate and title. All of this was to be done as quickly as might be after the death of the testator, and the estate was to remain under the control and guardianship of such only as she appointed. Special bequests to the artist, physician, and old servants of the estate were named, to be given from her own hand, 
And then the will closed with one brief clause. To Basil Lamour, who has disgraced his blood, abused my kindness, and betrayed every trust I ever reposed in him, I leave one franc. It will buy him a rope wherewith to save the public execution or future trouble. He can hang himself. A curse, wild and bitter, broke from the lips of the young man as the notary read these words, and turning to Adeline Churchill, he said, You have incited him to this. Beware, you shall weep tears of blood before you die. No heir but myself shall tread these ancient halls. I swear it. <laughs> He's dying and the will not signed. <laughs> I'll conquer yet. The old Marquis, who had sunk back in a spasm, quivered apparently in the agonies of death, roused up as the young villain uttered this exultant cry. No, no, he gasped. The will shall be signed. I am yet strong enough in mind, in will, and body for that. And to the astonishment of his physician, of his niece, and most of all to Basil Lamour, he actually rose from his chair, stepped three paces to the table, took the pen from the hand of the notary, and signed the will. Witness, witness all, he said, as he handed the pen to his physician. He watched while the doctor and the artist signed their names. Then rising, he attempted to regain his chair. But nature had given her last assistance. His vitality failed, and reeling, he fell back into the arms of his young painter. A second he gasped, then all was over. He was dead. Adeline wept as she bowed her face above his white hairs, but she was roused to one bitter burst of indignation when Basil Amor cried out, I am now the Marquis of Omohundro. Liar and murderer, be gone, she cried. Be gone, or I will have you scourged from the presence of the dead. I go, he said. I go to mature a revenge that shall be sweeter to me than the hope your beggar painter has long matured in his breast to call you wife. The word had barely left his lips ere the clenched hand of the beggar painter dealt him a blow which sent him staggering from the room. Oh, Edward, he will murder you, cried the fair girl. The coward dare not raise a hand to me. He can threaten, but he dare not attempt to harm you. Farewell, for now I must go. My mother needs my presence. The artist was gone in an instant, while the chamber was becoming crowded by the old retainers and servants who came in on hearing the sad news that their kind master was gone. Chapter 2. He Shall Serve Me, Not Her The stars shone out in as clear a sky as the setting sun had left, and the peasant girls, careful as Yankee lasses would be to look upon the new moon over the left shoulder, looked wonderingly at the handsome cavalier who, beneath its light, spurring his horse to its maddest speed, galloped down the winding road which led from the castle to the hamlet in the valley below. But he went by them like the shadow of a gale-wrapped cloud, and he did not halt until he reached the inn or cabaret kept by Louis Popinette. In front of this, he halted so suddenly that he drew his horse back on his haunches, and leaping from its back, he threw the reins to the wandering hostler and said no word as to the care of the animal. He rushed inside. Louis Papinette was alone. It was too early yet for his regular evening customers, but when Basil Lamour came in, he bowed low and said, Monsieur, how may I serve you? Monsieur le Marquis, if you please, said the young man haughtily. The late Marquis de Omohundro lies dead in the castle. I hold his title, even if I have to fight for the estate. Louis Papinette was a man of the world, and this was enough, even in France, to make him bow to the man who inherited a title, if nothing more. But he did not bow so low as he would have done, had Basil Amort said, I inherit the title and the estate. He bowed low enough for the occasion, however, and said, 
How may I serve the Monsieur le Marquis? You have here a guest, a strange man I learn, who has lately come from America. I wish to see and talk to him. Monsieur le Marquis means Jacques Le Salle, I presume. He has been a great hunter, and I know not what more, but he will not talk to you or to anybody else. He is, to speak plain, ugly. He came back here to his native village, which he left when a mere lad, full of romance and adventure. He came back to find his first and only love. It seems he was betrothed, or rather that they plighted their troth, before he went. He found her married to the steward of the castle up there, the new steward, for his father died a year ago and the son took his place. So his love was turned to hate for her and everything else, judging by his ways. But he is a good guest. He eats little, drinks a good deal, and pays out his gold without a second look at it. Yes, Monsieur Jacques is a good guest, but he will not talk to you. He never talks to me except to ask some questions about her. Never mind, I want to see him. I will go and announce your name, Monsieur le Marquis. No, show me to his room, nothing more. I will manage the interview. But Monsieur le Marquis, he will get mad. He carries pistols, he might shoot you. <laughs> I'll risk that. Lead me to his room. The tone and look which accompanied these words were sufficient to intimidate Louis Papinet, and he thought it best to accede to the wish so peremptorily uttered. He led the way to a chamber in the rear of the cabaret, which had a window facing toward the castle on the hill. The chamber door was open, and Basil Lamour saw a tall man of powerful frame, with long black hair floating down over his shoulders, standing before that window. His arms were folded over his broad breast, and he seemed to be in deep thought, for he stood still as a statue until the sound of an intruding footstep reached his ear. Then he turned suddenly, with a savage, hateful look on his bearded face, just as Lamort told Papinette to go, and he himself entered the chamber. "'Who are you, and why do you come here?' he said, abruptly and harshly. "'I am the Marquis of Omohundro, and you lie. The Marquis of Omohundro is an old man. His hairs are as white as the snow of Pike's Peak. His lips are white, too.' For he was Marquis of Omohundro, and he lies dead in yonder castle. Good. I wish everyone on that estate lay dead also. Why are you here? I am here, Jacques Lasalle, to see you and to strike a bargain with you. I know your name, something of your history, the cause of your rather savage way of receiving a visit like mine. You hate a man and a woman up there. So do I. Why do you hate them? I do not know that I hate those you hate, but I can trample them, or anyone else underfoot, who may stand between me and those whom I do hate. We had better be friends. I'm as bitter as you are, as devilish as you dare be. So far, so good. Can you drink? Yes, as deeply as you can. We'll see. Lassalle pulled a bone whistle from his pocket and blew it sharply. It was answered by Louis Papinet in person. Brandy, your strongest. That was all the savage-looking man said, but it satisfied the landlord that the new marquis had made friendly terms with his guest, so he hastened to bring brandy and glasses. When a bottle and two glasses were placed on the table, LaSalle pointed to the door, and Papinette left. Filling both glasses to the brim, the hunter, as he was called at the inn, raised one to his lips while Basil Amour took the other. Here is to a good hater, and to him who likes to drink deep from the sea of revenge, cried Basil, drinking down every drop in his glass. LaSalle said nothing, but again filled his own glass and passed the bottle to Basil. The latter filled again and drank a second glass without remark, as he saw LaSalle's glass emptied. Now talk, 
my ears are open, said LaSalle, more quiet in look and manner, as if these fiery droughts acted like sedatives on his fiery nature. I think you will have a visit by and by, a visit from a woman, said Basil Lamour. She had best not come here. The hunter thrust his hand inside his vest, and the handle of a huge knife became visible. She had best not come here, he cried bitterly. I would rather kill him, but if Lucille dares to speak to me, no, I did not say Lucille. It is a high-born lady, young, beautiful, and rich, who will come, and she will come to ask a service. She can go back again. I'm no servant to man or woman. In America, I learned to be free. Ah, you speak of America. You've been there long. Yeah, long for me. For ten years, I roved over her hills and plains, amassing a fortune to share with her I loved. I made it. I came back, and I found her false. Curse her and her sex. They're more treacherous than the wild Comanches. True. We are agreed on that. I hate women, except for when I want to break their hearts. Basil filled his glass a third time and drank. His eyes flashed from two causes. He felt the effect of the potent spirit, and he began to hope that he could enlist an ally in the plans he was forming. Who is the woman, and why does she want to see me? She is the niece of the dead Marquis, my cousin. He thought that there was an heir to his title and estate living in America. A hunter like yourself, and in his last will he made it her duty to search this man out and bring him here to usurp my right, for I claim the title and the estate. I do not believe such a man lives. If he does, he must die. She will seek your aid to find him. I have spoken first, and seek your aid to kill him if he's alive. Man, you do not know me. I am not an assassin. Yet you spoke of killing the steward up there, and of killing Lucille, his wife. Curse them, yes, but they are my game, not yours. True again. But why not work one with the other? I can help you in your plans, and you in mine. To merely kill either of the two you hate would be folly, for it would all end when they are dead. You can punish before death. Heaven only can punish afterward. You know how to argue. Yes, when argument is necessary, but I think little is needed here. I can make the lives of those two, Lucille and her husband, miserable, for I know them and their peculiarities. I will aid you in this, if you will aid me in my plans. It's a bargain. Here's my hand. Jacques LaSalle extended his great hard hand, and when it was compressing the slender fingers of Basil Amour, the letter winced with pain. Yet he smiled and repeated, It is a bargain. At the same moment, the landlord came to the chamber door and said, A lady in a carriage at the door seeks an interview with Monsieur LaSalle, the hunter from America. Ah, so soon. She cannot wait till her uncle is underground. See her, Monsieur LaSalle, but make no promise till we confer. I will retire. You can enter that inner room and hear all that passes between us, said LaSalle to Lamour. Then, returning to Papinette, he said, Escort the lady hither, but first take away the brandy. The lady has a gentleman with her. He may wish to come also. I care not. If Satan were in her company, it would make no difference to me. Papinette vanished, and Basil Lamour entered the inner room, closing the door behind him. An instant later, a lady, dressed in deep black, closely veiled, leaning on the arm of a young, light-haired, blue-eyed man, entered. I wish to see Monsieur LaSalle lately from America, she said in a low, sweet tone, slightly tremulous. Your wish is accomplished, for you see Jacques LaSalle before you, mademoiselle. This was spoken in a quiet, respectful tone, but the look of the speaker was cold and haughty. 
I wish to engage the services of a man conversant with Americans and America to go with me to that country to seek for a lost relative. I can afford to remunerate you well if you will be that man. Mademoiselle, I own a silver mine in America, and my bank account in Paris is not small. I am not a menial to be hired to go here and there. Monsieur, you mistake me. I do not look upon you as a menial. Neither do I ask you a menial service. This gentleman will go with me as a friend and companion, as adviser and protector, and I shall reward him. But he will not have to sacrifice his manly pride. I have heard you well spoken of by one who knew you in the past. Lucille, dare she speak of me? Yes, the wife of our steward speaks of you as a brave, a true-hearted man. Tell her I speak of her as a perjured fiend. Once I loved her, and now I hate and loathe her. It is not true. You love her yet, and were she free, would wed her. Mademoiselle, no, hear me. She did not hear from you for years. Her parents died. She was poor, dependent, friendless, homeless. One came. Stop. Mademoiselle, stop. I wish not to hear of him. Tomorrow you shall have your answer. I will not say now what I will do. I want time to think. Thank you. I believe you will aid me. I pray heaven you will. Tomorrow I will send for your answer. Will you send Lucille? I cannot promise, but I will send or come myself. Monsieur LaSalle, adieu. Mademoiselle, adieu. Jacques LaSalle stood alone with eyes bent upon the floor when Basil Lamour entered from the inner room. Pretty well played, but the tale was false, said Lamour. The girl had a home and enough to live on. But the son of the old steward was handsome, had a smooth tongue, and stop, stop. I will hear no more. My heart began to soften, but now it is steel again. Sit down while I call for more brandy. I must drink. Ah, drink alone to drown the past and nerve me to my work. The hunter left the room, while Basil Lamour, with a red flush on his face, rubbed his white hands together and muttered, I can make him mine. Jealousy and hate work hand in hand. He shall serve me, not her. Chapter 3 The Scout at Bay Trailed, and by a hundred of the fiends. Now good angels help me. This was the utterance of a young man, nobly formed, clad in the picturesque buckskin garb won by the hunter scouts of the far west, armed with knife, revolver, and rifle, and mounted on a splendid horse of the mixed American and Mustang stock. He had just risen to the crest of a sandy ridge near the base of the famous Black Hills, and looking back he saw a large body of Indians riding in column, swiftly along the very route which he had just come. They were on his track. If I had but fifty of my brave Pawnees, I would not turn my back on a hundred of these cowardly Sioux. But alone there is no show to fight till I am cornered. Then it will be fight and die. Forward, Duke. It is your speed alone which can get me out of this scrape. There is cover, but it's twenty miles ahead. Go, my good horse. Go, for the red devils see us. The noble horse seemed to actually understand his brave master's talk, or his needs, for without touch of spur, or even a loud word, the animal sprang forward on a long, bounding lope, which would carry his master rapidly toward the only shelter in sight, the wooded cliff of the great black hills. A mile or more was passed, and another low ridge was crested when the hunter looked back and saw that the Indian band was at full speed gaining upon him. Faster, good duke, faster, he cried, and now the spur touched the flanks of his gallant horse. Forty miles today I know have tried you some, but we must take the hills or go under. 
The horse responded nobly to the touch of his master's heel and sped on at a gait which showed a gain upon the red pursuers when the hunter next looked back. But as wolves follow the deer, so the red fiends kept on tirelessly, and when full half the distance to the tree-crowned hills was done, more than half of them were yet nearer than when the white rider first discovered them. No look of fear was on that brave rider's face, but his set lips, his flashing eyes, told full well his knowledge that the chance was desperate. The Spencer rifle, which had been slung at his back, was now brought forward, ready for use, but his horse, still urged to the utmost, kept him out of the range of the pursuing foe. But the foam flakes falling from his mouth, the trembling of the overstrained limbs, told the brave rider plainly that the race could not last long. Either the Indians must tire soon, or he would not be able to reach the timber, where fight or concealment would be more available. Nearer and nearer to the hills, the trees rising in every leap of the faithful horse, but nearer too, the bloodhounds in the rear. The rider in advance, who had looked back, but little in the start, now kept an almost constant eye over his shoulder. The fiends keep well together, he muttered. If they were more scattered, I'd rest my horse and take ten or a dozen of them down at long range. But to stop now would bring fifty all too close. Good Duke, keep up if you can. Two miles more and you shall rest. The horse, goaded again by the spur, renewed its struggle, and for a little time it once more gained upon the foe. Yet they were now so close that their yells, borne upon that brisk east wind, reached the hunter's ears. They think they have me, he muttered. If they have, they'll find me a hard nut to crack. More than one yelling devil will eat lead for his supper before I go under. On, on, good duke, we may beat him yet. The horse, apparently cheered by his master's voice, gave a few mighty bounds, and the latter, surprising and rejoicing, thinking he would surely gain the hills in advance of the red fiends, shouted out a wild defiance to the demons of the plains. Alas, like many a triumph, his seemed short-lived, for the horse suddenly fell to the earth, and with a groan as if its heart had burst, quivered in his death agony. The bold rider did not flinch. As the horse staggered and fell, the former left his stirrups and stood firmly upon the ground, facing the coming foe as coolly as if 10,000 men were at his back. Come, you red fiends, come, he said bitterly. Yell your loudest while you can, for more than one will yell his last ere Texas Jack goes under.